Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. We just published an episode the other day on the science of addiction. And uh, this is kind of the part two. I mean, uh, you can probably listen to this episode without having listened to the previous one, but they, they, they go well together, so we recommend that viewing order, uh, listening order rather. Uh, this episode is uh, going to look at the future of addiction, uh, and we're not talking about just what kind of crazy drugs will they have in uh, the future. No, we're talking about how can we treat addiction in the future? What are some of the cutting-edge and emerging techniques and technologies that will be at our disposal to deal with the disease of addiction. Yeah, and before we look at the the future stuff, let's just kind of look at what's going on in the present. The number one driver of AIDS in the world is used heroin needles, particularly in countries where we there's no needle exchange program. So, what if you could get rid of the root problem? You could eradicate Heroin addiction, or for that matter, really any addiction. Yeah, and we're not just talking, you know, instantly minds tend to turn to Africa, and certainly that's one of the areas uh, concerned here. But uh, other you know, countries that don't have needle exchange programs include uh, such large uh, populous nations as China and Russia. Yeah, I think that people don't, you know, at least people outside of the United States don't realize what an insidious problem this is. Half a trillion dollars are spent worldwide to treat addiction. So here's just one little prism of the addiction problem in the U.S. An estimated 1.4 million Americans are addicted to cocaine, uh, which was the reason for more than 482,000 emergency department visits in 2008 and is a leading cause of heart attack and stroke among people younger than age 35. So the problem here, of course, is that we have access and and if you look at you know sort of where drugs are in the time continuum of history here um we have more access to drugs than ever before Mm -hmm. and more types of drugs and what emerges here are some highly highly addictive substances i'm talking about meth which creates one of the biggest boosts of dopamine in the brain Mm mm-hmm and prolonged use of this can lead to psychotic-like symptoms, We're talking about strong hallucinations and really violent behavior. And studies of the brain patterns of some long-term meth users have shown that up to 50% of their dopamine-producing cells have been damaged. So if you listened um, to the other episode on this, then you kind of know already that um, this is a situation where the person is just getting deeper and deeper into the hole. Because yeah. it's not about free will anymore. Because the parts of your brain, the executive function, have been so eroded by drugs that even if you wanted to stop, you might not be able to. Yeah, and and, and that's certainly the, the anti-drug messaging that I think needs to be focused on more often with methamphetamine. Mm-hmm. Because I was, I was reading, uh, and according to uh, neuropsychopharmacologist Carl Hart, there's actually no empirical evidence to support the claim that methamphetamine causes one to become physically unattractive. Which, uh, hopefully they've, they, they're calming down on that, but for the longest, like, like meth mouth, you know, and the, the oh, transformation right. of the meth addict into some sort of subhuman hyena person mm-hmm. has been kind of the focus when certainly that's flashy and that works on a billboard, uh, a little easier. 
but the the reality of what's actually changing with the brain that is far scarier than some sort of Jekyll and Hyde show. I agree. I have seen the ads before where there's like this beautiful woman, and mm-hmm. then she takes out her false teeth, and she mm-hmm. takes off her makeup, and all of a sudden you see her her meth addict riddled face, and they are appealing to vanity. But vanity doesn't matter when addiction is is highly routinized in your brain. Right. Um, nobody cares anymore what they look like. So if you were to instead crack open the brain and show people this is how your brain is actually like completely mutating here, that mm-hmm. might be a far more compelling story to people. The next one is another biggie, and that is, of course, heroin uh, derived from opium. And, of course, this one has been wreaking havoc for, uh, for years and years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 30% of first-time users will become addicted, and in 2005, 2.4% of the American population said they had tried heroin at least once. The source of that is Department of Health. And withdrawal symptoms are really acute. They arrive just a few hours after a dose wears off. And because of this, users have a really high chance for relapse because we talked about this in the last episode. Um, at some point, the addiction becomes less about chasing the high and more about chasing some sort of equilibrium and feeling normal again, which can only happen if you get more of the substance in your body. All right, and the next big one to hit uh, might come as a surprise because it's not crack cocaine. It is nicotine. Nicotine is a very addictive substance, but we often overlook this. Why? Um, I think it's because it's legalized, right? Yeah. Something like 80% of people who ever try cigarettes will become nicotine addicts yeah, at some can, point. You can buy it legally at the store, at the gas station. Used to, you could get it out of a machine. Um Someone's liable to, and given its legality and and overall still social acceptance, um, people are liable to give it to you without it being that, that big of a deal as well. So, and it still looks cool on TV, right? Yeah, and it's not as big of a risk. And this is something that David Linden, a professor of neuroscience at Johns Hopkins University, pointed out. He said, you know, hey, if you have a, a bag of heroin, you're not going to do a whole bag of heroin. You know, you're mm-hmm. going to overdose. But if you have a pack of cigarettes. And you have 10 or 20 of those cigarettes throughout the day. You get that little ding of dopamine each time. Yeah. And he kind of, yeah, he kind of like likened it to Pavlov's dog, right? Mm-hmm. So he said that we're really good at training our inner dog and sort of being like, Oh, I need a little pickup right now. And you get that little dopamine, um, pleasure feeling from it, but you're not going to necessarily, um, render yourself unconscious or unable to work or any of those things. But still, it is an addiction, and it is an addictive behavior. Yeah, you hear about people being a one or two-pack-a-day smoker, uh, whereas uh, in, in the panel, uh, they pointed out that uh, that even a heavy heroin user is probably not going to use more than three times a day. And so uh, to, to go back to what uh, one of the topics we discussed in the previous episode, chunking that idea that the brain is forming mm-hmm. habits, if X, then Y, and Z, and uh, and then forming a shortcut, kind of a hot key for the brain for behavior, encoding the memory of usage, uh, you're, you're going to have what you know 20 times uh, or more per day that you're enforcing that shortcut as opposed to a maximum three times per day with the heroin user. Yeah, and Charles Duhigg, the author of um, was The Habit Loop, I think I totally slaughtered that. But um, he's talked about this and, and written about this at length. And he says his claim is that 45% of our decisions every day, that's just habit. We think we're making these decisions, but really we're just responding to environmental cues in these well-worn neural pathways in our brains. Yeah, because as we've discussed before, habits take up energy. They take up cognitive power, and we don't have a limitless amount of that. So 
we hand it over to, to routine. We hand it over to habit so that we'll have some juice to handle the actual decisions that are coming at us. And, of course, the, the problem with this is that, again, your brain, your brain circuitry isn't making any sort of like, hey, this could be a terrible thing. Don't do this. Um, and your prefrontal cortex, your executive functions in your brain are already sort of um, lessened by the addictive behavior. All right. The next thing we have here is prescription medication, one of the rapidly growing substances of abuse in the U.S. Between 1980 and 1998, abuse of prescription drugs increased 400%, and it has about the same amount of usage in America as cocaine, according to the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Drug overdose was the leading cause of injury death in 2010, and among people 25 to 64 years old, drug overdose caused more death than motor vehicle traffic crashes. So the National Institute on Drug Abuse goes on to say, by the way, in 2010, 78% of the drug overdose deaths in the U.S. were unintentional. 78%. And I think that this is painting a story here about how prescription drugs uh, have become so accessible and people are mixing them with other drugs or mixing them mm-hmm. with alcohol to their detriment. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's important to, 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 to point out yeah, that uh, prescription drugs, just because it's prescribed, does not mean it is uh, necessarily a safe substance. Yeah. Uh, in fact, many of these are very dangerous substances. I mean, many of these are amphetamines. Uh, and uh, They're not that different from the illegal variant. And certainly methamphetamine itself is, uh, if memory serves, a Schedule II narcotic anyway, mm-hmm. uh, which means that it uh, conceivably has a medical purpose. Uh, and it makes sense, too, like which, which car is going to be faster, the one made in a garage or the one made uh, uh, at, at, a, at a factory, right? And what do we have with with drugs? Your street drug is often made in a garage, mm-hmm. whereas your uh, your your pharmaceutical product is made by a billion upon billion dollar industry. So it is it's kind of like a supercharged vehicle. Yeah, and um, there, I'm sure that people are aware that there are ways that people get their hands on drugs that they shouldn't have. They're mm-hmm. illegal drugs prescribed, and I won't go into that. I will say that if you are interested in learning more about this prescription drugs, check out the documentary American Addict. It goes into detail. It's pretty depressing, um, but it's also very eye-opening about this topic. All right, uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we are going to talk about the treatment of addiction. All right, we're back. So we've uh, we've we discussed addiction here. Let's talk about the ways that we treat addiction. We have several different uh, approaches that uh, are currently in play, and we're looking at some uh, some new uh, methods of tackling it in the future. Yeah, and before we go into that, we should say, hey, by the way, rate of relapse is really high for addicts. I think this is something most people know. According to the National Institute on Drug Abuse, relapse rates for drug-addicted patients, about 40 to 60%, is similar to relapse in those suffering from diabetes, hypertension, and asthma. And drug addiction should be treated like any other chronic illness, with relapse serving as a trigger for renewed intervention. So keep this in mind. Um, and we talked about this, this idea mm-hmm. of memory encoding behavior, and there being triggers for that. So imagine that you have just completed a program, say, from heroin abuse, and you get out, and um, 
I think I called them before, these neural ghosts, these neural pathways in your brain, the sort of cellular scarring that's still there, it's very easy to tap into that and have that behavior express itself again. A great example of this is Philip Seymour Hoffman, which is brought up at the World Science Festival uh, for the panel of The Craving Brain. They said, look at this guy. He was something like 10 years sober from heroin addiction, went to a rap party one night, had a beer, and then something like, I don't know, was it weeks or months later, had mm-hmm. died from a heroin overdose. Yeah, it just started him down the path, opened up those pathways uh, again in the brain, those those pathways of habit and behavior and addiction. And uh, and then they, that's where he ended up. Yeah. So, you know, you're not uh, treating something that's easily dealt with here. Right. Just in, I, I keep coming back to the idea of a cat's cradle, right? You know, where you take the, the shoelace mm-hmm. tied together and you, you string it between your fingers. And it's all the different fingers holding the string out to form this pattern. And you can't, you know, put, point at one particular finger and say that is the, the cause of the pattern. That is the cause of the, the overall design here. And just as there's no over, that one finger you can pin the whole design on, there's no one finger you can remove. There's no one treatment plan that's going to, to, to be a magic bullet against, uh, the problem of addiction. Yeah, because in one sense, um, it doesn't really matter anymore if you have genetic dispositions to addiction if you're in the middle of an addiction. Mm-hmm. Because at that point, you've got habit taken over. You've got some, yeah. some significant... The train has left the station. Yeah, the train's left the station. There are significant changes to your brain, and now you've got you know, memory all wrapped up in it. So, um, so, yeah, it is a bit of a cat's cradle. But the treatments can't really treat a cat's cradle. Right. You can no, pretty much go after individual fingers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's no unified treatment. So the most widespread medication right now um, is antidepressants because this would address the feelings of despair uh, or, you know, any sort of pre-existing condition like depression that may have led to the addiction in the first place. Mm-hmm. So the problem with that, though, is that you would have to really pair that with behavioral therapy yeah. because it's not just enough to say, here's an antidepressant. And we we have another um, a number of other medications that sort of target individual uh, parts of the chemical cocktail involved in addiction. Um, we have, uh, for instance, uh, one of the most famous being uh, methadone, which suppresses withdrawal symptoms and relieves cravings mm-hmm. uh, with uh, people recovering from uh, from heroin, uh, you know, morphine addiction. Um, you have other uh, substances such as naltrexone, which works by blocking the effects of heroin and other opiates at the receptor sites. Um, you have, of course, so when you're dealing with nicotine, you have nicotine replacement therapies mm-hmm. where you know, essentially you're still getting the nicotine, just not through the uh, the cigarette, and that's used to to, to help with the uh, with the with, with the uh, with cravings and whatnot. With uh, alcohol, you have uh, naltrexone, uh, which blocks uh, opiate receptors that are involved in the rewarding effects of drinking and in the craving of alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, so you see the, all these types of medication. There again, they're going after sort of a, a particular point in the chain chain of effect, and, uh, and and but they can't they can't deal with environment. They they can only deal with with one point in uh, in the, uh, the the chemical reaction, be it in how the brain is receiving or how the brain is dealing with withdrawal from the substance. And, of course, that has to, uh, has to have a behavioral counterpoint, counterpoint part in order to succeed. Yeah, and in the case of methadone, that itself is highly addictive, and it's been argued that you're just delaying the process of rehabilitation, really. You're just moving the goalpost out. So what do we have on the horizon in the future? I mean, we've got some really interesting things going on. Um, one is called optogenetics. 
and or excuse me, optogenics. And uh, this is basically kind of like um, a light-sensitive molecule that's beamed into the brain so far of rats. Mm-hmm. So rats that are learning certain habits, the researchers can use this optogenetics treatment to basically turn on or off neurons in the rat's brains and block the behavior and block the the ability of that rat to sort of remember, like, hey, I want to go and do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's interesting about this is that the rats change their behavior in response to different rewards, even when the light wasn't present. So after they got the initial zap with mm-hmm. the light, they still didn't return to the bad behavior, even when a significant amount of time had passed. So obviously this is happening in rats right now, not in humans. Um, but it plays into this other idea, which is electromagnetic stimulation. Yeah, this is the form that this would likely take in the treatment of, of, of human addicts, and certainly this is where the research is headed. Um, and, and in this, we would use electromagnetic stimulation outside of the scalp, hope no surgery required, uh, using transcranial magnetic stimulation on these uh, particular parts of the brain, uh, again, to almost... Uh, not, not to simplify it and say that it's just like turning a, a switch on and off mm-hmm. in terms of addiction, but uh, but but turning off that uh, that 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 craving, right? Yeah, and increasing the neural activity in the parts of the brain that deal with executive functions like willpower, right? Right. So that's we've talked about that. That's such a a big part of this. So then you have you know willpower being ramped up, and you have the addiction behavior being ramped down. What you still have to deal with is memory and those triggers. And David Linden, the neuroscientist and author of The Compass of Pleasure, says addiction is a form of learning. When we, for example, puff on a cigarette or inject heroin in our arm, we are developing associations between the act of puffing or the act of injecting all the other sensory information that's around the sights and the smells. The people we're with, the music we're hearing, the room we're in, the situation that surrounds us and the pleasure that is produced as the result of puffing on that cigarette or injecting that heroin. Well, I hate to invoke the uh, the title of the movie anymore since it's invoked again in every every uh, news article on science that deals with erasing a memory, but you kind of have to uh, go eternal sunshine of the spotless mind on that particular drug memory. Because as we discussed in a previous episode, uh, the drug memory is uh, has has a, is, is really firmly encoded. It's not just the memory of taking the drug; it's the memory of the environment, the situation of the drug, uh, all these things tied up into it. So, yeah, what if you could go after that memory? If you could blast that memory, sort of photon torpedo it, then you could conceivably have a leg up on beating the addiction. Or you could uh, you could just like hose it down with a chemical, which is essentially what researchers at the Scripps Research Institute have done. This is from a fall 2013 study published online in Biological Psychiatry. For six days, they had rats alternate between one of two rooms. And on the odd days, they were put in a chamber, let's call it chamber A, and given meth. Mm -hmm. On even days, they were put in chamber B and given a saline placebo. So a couple of days later, Half of these rodents were given a choice between those two rooms. And the room associated with meth, of course, was preferred by those rats who were injected with meth. But the other half of the rodents were then injected with something called latrunculin A, or LAT-A. And this is a chemical that interferes with actin, and that's a protein known to be involved in memory formation. So 
when they were injected with lacte, or excuse me, latte, the animal showed no preference between rooms, even up to a day later. Again, this is all highly experimental, but it's it's giving us an idea that there are certain interventions that can happen to address all the different facets of addiction. And the researchers do point out that you don't have to worry about uh, about this particular method being used to just erase memories willy-nilly. They say that you actually couldn't take their discovery and erase your run-of-the-mill memory inside of the brain. Uh, they said you could only use this to get rid of these strong drug-associated memories. And, of course, there's going to be uh, many more studies. You know, there will have to be human trials in order for mm-hmm. this to, for the FDA to approve of it. Um, but that gets us into this other territory in which the FDA has approved one type of vaccine, but not another. And what I'm talking about are vaccines developed by Kim D. Janda. He was on that World Science Festival panel of the craving brain to block the effects of heroin in users, but also block the effects of nicotine in users. So guess which one is being funded? Oh, well, obviously they're going to fund the nicotine one because that's your... That, that's your kind of your your white collar drug, right? Everyone yeah. is is dealing with ni- nicotine, but heroin. Oh, that's that's a dirty, uh, that's a dirty drug. That's uh, that's the at the bottom of the uh, the circus tent, right? That's the that's down there where the safety net is. Yeah, even though an estimated twelve million to fourteen million people used heroin as of two thousand and nine, according to according to the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime. And Americans, uh, something like 281,000 in 2011. So obviously it's a pervasive problem and we spend a lot of money on that. Uh, but the vaccine itself stimulates the immune system to recognize the substance and it has to be given over a period of weeks, which eventually renders the person immune to the drug. Yeah, because how do our immune systems right, work, right? Our immune systems evolve to deal with foreign outside invaders. Yeah. So our immune system doesn't doesn't look at incoming uh, cocaine or heroin or nicotine or alcohol and say, say, oh, that's bad. Let's go after that. They say, sorry, that's not on our list of, uh, of suspects. We're not going to go. Uh, we're not going to go arrest that right. guy. You know. Right. So the idea here with this vaccine is it is it puts those offenders on the uh, on the suspect list for our immune system and keeps them from crossing a very important border, at least in the case of the the, the heroin. Yeah, the blood-brain barrier, because that's key here. That will actually block any psychoactive effect. So in other words, you're not going to get high. Yeah. And what they found in the rats, or what Janda said he found, is that they would give the rats, like, uh, doses oh, yeah, of it's really heroin. an overdose quantity, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. and the rats would survive when they were vaccinated. So, of course, you know, that's not something you would want to try in human trials. But, um, but it does lead us to this idea that once you take the psychoactive part out, the the actual um, blood brain barrier part where it doesn't get into your brain and then affect the rest of the system, is that you could render this this drug toothless. Yeah, and it's it. It's important to note that this is not like uh, like a lot of other vaccines. It's not a situation where you'd say, all right, give everybody in the population the heroin vaccine, and then heroin doesn't work on anybody. Mm-hmm. This would be more of a, a tool to prevent a relapse, really. Yeah, but again, the problem here is the stigma, because, mm-hmm. of course, the nicotine one is, is uh, has human trials. It's oh, going to yeah. be brought to market. Just look at those polite people in the TV commercials dealing with their nicotine problems, right? Yeah. And certainly many of our, our listeners are dealing with nicotine problems. They don't want to cheapen it or anything, but... It's it's far more socially acceptable. Like think of your TV version of the guy who's smoking too much, and it's just a random guy. It might even be Goofy from the Disney cartoons. I finally remember him trying to quit smoking. 
on the cartoon, <laughs> I never saw a Disney cartoon in which Goofy had to deal with a heroin problem. Even though that fits the time period, right? The 40s. It, yeah, you it know, worked perfectly. I mean, you could see Mickey tying uh, his arm off. I mean, and we're making light of this. But really, I mean, this is this is something that I think is, is um, very disheartening, especially for Kim D. Janda, who mm-hmm. came up with a vaccine in the first place for heroin to stop the spread of AIDS. Because, of course, the vector here is uh, used needles. So I think it's got to be... Uh, Really just disheartening for him to hear from um, Big Pharma, there's no market for this. There's yeah. no market for a heroin vaccine. Are you kidding? Yeah, because, again, when you look at the, the huge public health benefit to something like this, it just it's insane. Yeah, and another thing that they said on the panel is that um, this just has to become more of the national discussion and that... Uh, that doctors need to have medical training on how to talk to their patients about addiction. Because I say right now that they, they're not trained in that and that the big joke among doctors is that if a patient comes to you and says, I drink four drinks a night, you should probably double whatever it is that they say. Yeah. Um, and you, and not even really address the problem or the situation or dig any deeper. Yeah, it does just seem like anytime you, you're you're dealing with a doctor, it's like it's not maybe it's not firmly established in the public mindset that this is a safe zone mm-hmm. and that you can actually talk about what you're putting into your body legally or illegally because it is bottom line essential to your health. But you know, I think that if the I think that if the medical field approached it in a different way mm-hmm. and like for instance I went to um my doctor, and she said, hey, Julie, I just ran these tests on you. It looks like you've got some genetic predispositions for addiction. I wanted to you know, just give you a heads up. Or are you in any sort of stress loops in your life that you need help with or that you're aware of? Then it, I know it takes up more time with your doctor. But again, it's opening up the line of communication, and it's taking out the stigma because you're talking about it. Mm-hmm. And if this is something that is so pervasive in society... By the way, something like 80% of all pharmaceuticals are consumed by the U.S., by people in the United States. Those, those are a lot of yeah. drugs, legal drugs, but still drugs that are being distributed and um, and consumed by people. So this obviously is, is not just a kind of a side problem that some people have. You know, I want to point out another possible application for the vaccine that was brought up, uh, the heroin vaccine, is that uh, you know, we were talking about rodents uh, that were uh, given this vaccine, how they could take essentially a, almost a, like a lethal overdose amount mm-hmm. of the drug and and still be fine. Uh, there's a possibility that uh, the vaccine could be used to treat people who are who have overdose symptoms. So healthcare professionals uh, pick someone up or arrive at a scene, someone's clearly right. overdosing yeah. on, on heroin, uh-huh. they can apply the vaccine uh, as a curative measure. Yeah, so emergency medicine could really benefit from this. But again, I, I just keep pointing to this idea that if you start to talk about it, if you start to remove mm-hmm. the stigma, then you can really get to the behavior part of it and to the root causes of it, the depression, anxiety, uh, whatever it is that's going on in a person's life, and treat the mental health part of this equation, which is so important. Yeah, and it's a shame that the, the whole topic becomes so political as well, because... Yeah. Like even a story like we mentioned Philip Seymour Hoffman earlier, I, I uh, looked him up again and was looking at some of the some various articles about him, and you still see this sort of uh, gut reaction from from some commentators where some people you know are saying, oh well this is you know horrible. This is a very mm-hmm. talented man who struggled uh, with it 
with his de- I don't even want to say his demons because that personifies it as something supernatural and not something that's based in in uh, in physical illness. Mm-hmm. Um, but but people were saying, oh well, this is terrible. He had to deal with this disease, and it eventually caught up with him. And then there's still people who are going to say, oh well, he was just like, essentially saying, oh well, he was just weak. Oh, he was just this is you know moral failure of his character. He was just a another uh, you know Hollywood phony or whatnot. You like you still see that kind of attitude. Uh, you know, all over the place. Yeah, I remember reading an op-ed piece, and I can't remember if it was Slate or Salon, but there was this 45-year-old dad with a family who wrote about, hey, look, this is a reminder of the slippery slope mm-hmm. when it comes to what, you know, he would say brain disease is when it comes to addiction, because I was someone who was on the edge and am very lucky to have not died with my addictions and I'm 45 years old and I realized that there are many triggers that could cause us just as it did with Hoffman. So there you have it. A little, uh, little look-see into the future, uh, ways that we can deal with addiction, the ways, ways that we might deal with addiction. Uh, but again, there, there has to be a, enough of investment in the public mindset. Um, to really see uh, th- this uh, this heroin vaccine uh, reach the point where it's actually affecting uh, world health. Yeah, and in the healthcare system, there has to be um, mm-hmm. you know enough support and money there. Um, do you have any ideas about this? Do you have any thoughts about the vaccines or any of the other treatments and the stigma? Uh, if you do, please let us know. Yeah, you can find us at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is our website. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find every podcast episode we've ever done. You'll find all the videos, all the blog posts. You'll find links out to our various social media accounts, including Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr, uh, as well as our YouTube account, Mind Stuff Show, where we're always rolling out all sorts of really cool video products. And let's say you want to get in touch with us a more old-fashioned way. Uh, well, here's here's something. Um, it's old-fashioned, I suppose. And you also may want to update your information here because our email address has changed. It has. And I'm not going to tell you old one. Forget that. It doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, uh, zapped it. Or, I don't even remember it. Yeah. It is below the mind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 